Good morning. Today we're beginning a new series of sermons which will take us right through Christmas and into January. We're going to be journeying together through the first few chapters of Matthew's Gospel, the first book in the New Testament section of our Bibles, as we revisit the basics of who our God is and what it means for us to follow him. Now the author of this book is generally considered to be the Matthew we encounter in the Gospel stories, one of the 12 followers or disciples picked by Jesus to form his closest circle of friends. And although we don't know the precise circumstances, it would appear that he probably had a twofold purpose in writing this account. Firstly, he wanted to show unbelieving Jews that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, the chosen one of God. And secondly, Matthew wrote to encourage Jewish believers who are struggling in their faith. His gospel account, although not the earliest of the gospels to be written, has historically been placed right at the start of the New Testament, and for good reason. Matthew's Gospel is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New, revealing the relationship between the Old and New covenants which God makes with his people. And more than any of the other three Gospels, it is filled with quotations from the Old Testament, direct quotes and illusions. More specifically, in this gospel, there are 16 statements which begin with the words, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Matthew wants us to recognise that the key events of Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his rising again from death, are a fulfilment of the total sweep of salvation history to its culmination in Jesus Christ. And we will see that this pattern is established right at the start in these first few verses that we're looking at today. But what do we make of those opening verses that Durunda read for us earlier? A list of names, some of whom we may have heard of, others who are completely unfamiliar to us. Do we perhaps feel tempted to skip over these and get straight to the real beginning of the story? Why does Matthew begin his account in this way? So let's for a moment think a little bit about genealogies or family trees. Now it seems to me that tracing one's family trees it is quite a popular preoccupation in our culture today. Indeed, two of my aunts, one on either side of the family, have attempted to do this, uh, although in some cases with rather limited success. There are websites dedicated to helping us research our family trees. There are even TV programmes in which actors or media personalities trace their family histories. Why is this such a fascination? 
Well, I suggest it is, at least in part, because tracing our family roots gives us a sense of identity and belonging, of understanding who we are. Indeed, even today, in traditional cultures that we might find in parts of Africa or the Maori culture in New Zealand, for example, family histories and family trees are a vital part of who you are. In the Western world, however, we find ourselves in a society which is fragmented, where we struggle to find that sense of belonging and we wonder who we really are. And so our desire to search for our ancestral line, to discover our roots. Likewise, Matthew's purpose in beginning his biography of Jesus with this genealogy is to establish the identity of Jesus. But it also tells us something of the bigger picture of who God is. And as we look into this in a bit more detail this morning, I'd like to draw out four key thoughts. Firstly, God works actively in and throughout history to restore and to fulfil his promises. Secondly, it's personal. He works in and through specific named, sometimes unnamed, individuals, some of whom are well known, but many of whom are not. The lineage of Jesus described here highlights the message of divine grace. And fourthly, we too are part of this big story if we're willing to accept and embrace God's invitation to us in Christ. So let's go back to the passage. I want to begin by looking at the first and the last verse. Verse 1 and verse 17 of the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel provide the formal framework for this genealogy. And both of these verses highlight three key names, Abraham, David and Christ. Jesus is declared to be the son of Abraham, a reference to the line of God's promise or the line of God's grace. He is also declared to be the son of David, a reference to the royal kingly line. Now, Abraham is the founding father of the Jewish people and a recipient of God's great promises, one of which being that the nations would be blessed through him and through his family. David was the great king of Israel, to whom again God made promises of future lordship over the whole world. And within these end pieces, these brackets, the lineage of Jesus is presented by Matthew in three sections, each of which comprises 14 names or 14 generations. And this distinctive grouping has a functional purpose. These three groupings correspond to the three great stages of Jewish history. The first stage is the history from Abraham to David, a stage which moves from the call of faith 
to the period in which David welded Israel into a nation. The second stage covers the history of Israel, right down to the exile in Babylon. A stage which deals with the interplay between man and God, exposing man's unfaithfulness and constant, consequent captivity in Babylon. It seemed as if all of God's promises to Abraham and David were lost forever. But interspersed with the captivity was the prophetic word of judgment, of grace and of hope. The prophets of the exile promised that God would once again restore Abraham's people and David's royal line. The third stage carries the history of Israel from the Babylonian captivity to the birth of Jesus Christ. It shows how the salvation history continued through a remnant of the faithful, focusing on the family of faith through which God entered the world in the incarnation in Jesus of Nazareth. And so this genealogy tells the story of God's people, of Israel. And by organising that history into this regular scheme of three groups of 14 generations, it indicates that the time of preparation is now complete. But where is it all leading? The answer, of course, is to Jesus. In Jesus, the time of fulfilment has arrived. He comes at the end of this line as God's anointed. He is the long-awaited Messiah, fulfilling multiple layers and levels of these prophecies of old. And so we see God acting in history and working throughout history to restore and to fulfil his promises. We grasp the grand scale of the story. But we also see signs of God's grace outworked in the lives of individuals. Some of those named in this list were well known and noted for great things, good or evil. Others were obscure or unheard of, yet all had a part to play. None was unimportant or insignificant. But there's something strange about this story, about the way in which it all happened. Matthew knows this and draws our attention to it. As we continue our journey into Matthew's Gospel next week, we'll see how Mary, Jesus's mother, became pregnant, not through her fiancé Joseph, but through the Holy Spirit. So Matthew reminds us of the strange ways in which God has worked in the Messiah's lineage by including the names of four women. Although it was unusual to find the names of women in Jewish pedigrees, it wasn't, however, unheard of. Indeed, the me mention of a mother alongside a father does occur in Old Testament genealogies. And the inclusion of Tamar, which we read in verse 3, and of Bathsheba, we read of in verse 6, are both derived directly from genealogies in the first book of Chronicles. But these four women 
who Matthew has selected for mention, do form a particularly striking group. And for two reasons. Firstly, all four were probably aliens, non-Jews. Tamar was a local girl, so presumably a Canaanite. Rahab, whilst, cannot be, whilst she cannot be identified as the mother of Boaz from any other source, almost certainly in Matthew's mind, is being associated with another Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, we read of in Joshua chapter 2, who helps God's people. Ruth was a Moabitess, and Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite. Secondly, three out of these four were suspected of adultery, and in all cases, there were suspicions of some sort of marital irregularity, although all four were in fact vindicated by God's subsequent blessing. They form an impressive precedent for Jesus' birth by an unmarried mother from an obscure background. But the inclusion of these women in the lineage of Christ the King highlights this message of divine grace. There is universal significance in Jesus' coming. God's plan of salvation is for the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, a theme Matthew returns to throughout his book. Moreover, God forgave and accepted persons in the lineage of Christ whose history was clouded, both men and women. The fact that these particular women are named makes clear that God in grace does not discriminate against persons because of past mistakes. But the story doesn't end here with the arrival of Jesus. The opening words of this gospel are the book of the genealogy, or more literally, the book of the origin. A phrase which would immediately remind a Jewish reader of Genesis chapter 2, chapter 5, where the same phrase is used in the Greek Old Testament. And continuing through Genesis, we see a similar phrase, these are the generations of, occurring, introducing both formal genealogies and narratives. So what? Well, it roots Jesus at the very beginning of God's creation, taking us back beyond Abraham and the beginning of Matthew's formal genealogy. John, the writer of the fourth gospel, expands on this idea at the start of his account, where we discover that Jesus is the incarnation of the word, the word clothed in humanity, and that this word was with God at the beginning, and that this word is God. Jesus is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all of creation exists. But this parallel with the language of Genesis suggests something more. 
It also suggests to us that the coming of Jesus is a new beginning, a new creation. Jesus is the culmination and fulfilment of what has gone before, but he is also the start of something new. We will see more of this as we continue into Matthew's gospel story. We will see how Jesus announces that there is a new way for us to live our lives, a way of entering into and experiencing all that God intends for us. There is a sense in which the family tree continues, but in a completely new way. And we're invited to be a part of it. And so in turn, this becomes our story, our history, our identity, our sense of belonging, our destiny. Because in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. Tom Wright helpfully summarises it in these words. Matthew's Gospel has stood at the front of the New Testament since very early times. Millions of Christians have read this genealogy as the beginning of their own exploration of who Jesus was and is. Once we understand what it all means, we are ready to proceed with the story. This, Matthew is saying, is both the fulfilment of two millennia of God's promises and purposes and something quite new and different. God still works like that today, keeping his promises, acting in character and yet always ready with surprises for those who learn to trust him. And so for those of us today who have already accepted God's invitation to be a part of his big story, his plan, those of us who are learning to trust him, then the question that presents itself is simply this. How is that working out in my life? How do I figure as part of God's plan for the redemption of creation and for the making of all things? new. But perhaps you're listening today and you're not sure. You're still trying to figure out who this Jesus was or is. Or perhaps you think you'd like to follow him but not sure how to begin to do that. If you have not yet accepted God's invitation to new life then I just invite you to reflect today on what might be preventing you from saying yes to him. There'll be an opportunity to drop into a Zoom meeting after the end of this video stream, if you're watching it on Sunday morning, or contact us via the church office if you'd simply like to chat about these things with one of us. And so we've seen how God works actively in and throughout history to restore and fulfil his promises. He is the God who does not change. He is the same yesterday as he is today and will be forever. He is still working in history and in the lives of individuals as he works his purposes out. Secondly, we've seen that it's personal. He works in and through individuals. 
some of us who are well, some of whom are well known, but many of whom are not. Some who work publicly and significantly, others who work away quietly. But no one is disregarded. All are invited. Thirdly, the lineage of Jesus highlights the message of divine, amazing grace. There is hope. There is forgiveness if we will accept what God is offering to us. And finally, we too are part of this big story. If we are willing to accept and embrace God's invitation to us in Christ. And so as we continue our journey into Matthew's Gospel over the coming weeks, we will explore more of who Jesus was and is, and we'll be reflecting on what it means to walk with him and find our place in his story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us today of your great plan of restoration and redemption, how you have been working throughout history from the very beginning to bring that about. As we've reflected on the story of Israel, a people who turn their backs on you, who slipped from grace, as it were, and yet were not beyond the reach of your grace. They were shattered and uh, thrown out into exile, yet you still pursued them and still held out that promise of restoration and hope. And so, Father, we know that today you hold out that promise of restoration and hope to each one of us. Your call to us is to turn, to face you, to acknowledge our brokenness and our need of you, and to walk humbly with our God. Father, as we hear that invitation today, we rejoice in it and we give thanks to you and we thank you for the fulfilment of these promises in Jesus. And we look forward to that day you have promised for the final fulfilment of these prophecies when he will come again to judge the world and to establish his kingdom forever. We look forward in hope. We live in hope and we praise you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all honour and glory. Amen.